Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. (sighs) Spring is a time of renewal, so why not refresh your home with a little help from Blinds.com? We make getting custom window treatments a minor project with major impact. Choose from premium blinds, shades, and shutters. We even have options for your patio, too. Blinds.com invented a better way to shop for custom window treatments. There's no pushy salespeople in your home or inflated showroom prices. Our design experts can help you find the perfect window treatments on your schedule. We'll even send free samples directly to you. Plus, we can handle the measuring and installation for you. Unlimited window treatments installed for just one low cost. And with Blinds.com, you'll always get transparent pricing. No hidden fees. Our free shipping and 100% satisfaction guarantee can put the spring back into your step. And into your home, too. Shop Blinds.com right now and save up to 45%. Up to 45% off for a limited time at Blinds.com. Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. Happy Tuesday. Welcome to the show. Thanks for being here as always. I mean, you just keep coming back. I'm just, I love it so much. You know, I know there's some listeners because we've gotten those uh, emails or messages that they sometimes get a little upset by the stuff that we say, but I'm happy and still um, grateful to anyone who has stuck with us. And to take the effort to send an email, we appreciate you or a text, even though I don't think they can text us. Well, I mean, the emails are a little mean, but, you know, it's okay. (laughs) Passionate. Emotionally passionate. Uh, Coming up on the show, we've got the first out LGBTQ plus Iranian-American elected to public office in the U.S. Joining us, Seppi Shine, 5.20 p.m. Pacific, 8.20 p.m. Eastern. She is amazing, and it's an honor to have her on the show today. She's back. Uh, You keep talking mm -hmm. about her like she's this her first time. She's been on the show. Uh, And we've got more news about Gavin Newsom being recalled. How will that even work? And Congress being diverse, but Hill staffers still remaining white overwhelmingly. And what that says about where we're headed and why that's even happening. First, let's get into some what's trending this hour, though. The Senate held its first public hearing on the security failures that took place during the deadly Capitol riot. And former and current law enforcement officials were grilled about the events surrounding January 6th, including why rioters were able to breach the building. Now, Senator Amy Klobuchar closed the hearing with what appears to be a little bit of a nod drag uh, to Republican Senator Ron Johnson, who shared that the insurrectionists weren't actually Trump supporters. He's sharing this conspiracy theory, but were provocateurs and fake Trump supporters. There is clear agreement that this was a planned insurrection. So and I think most members here um, uh, very firmly agree with that. Um, And I think it's important for the public to know that this was planned. We now know this was a planned insurrection. It involved uh, white supremacists. It involved extremist groups. And it certainly could have been so much worse, except for the bravery of the officers. Now, again, at least 250 men and women have been charged in connection to the attack that left five people dead. And uh, speaking of that, a trans woman from Ohio is facing decades in jail following her indictment on multiple charges relating to the storming of the Congress on January 6th. 
Jessica Watkins is a former Army Ranger and veteran of the war in Afghanistan. She's currently in jail awaiting trial for her part in the assault. And uh, she's, according to this article, which was in The Advocate, she was paying her dues as a member of the right-wing Oath Keepers militia group who formed her, uh, her own local group named the Ohio State Regular Militia. She was photographed in full tactical gear inside the Capitol, so there's obviously evidence she was there. Her lawyer petitioned the court alleging that Watkins has been treated harshly and is at particularly a risk in custody because she is trans. And so this brings up a whole other issue, which is interesting. We should talk more about that. Should she be treated differently because she is trans? And I, I, I don't remember hearing other people who have been uh, jailed or arrested for this who could face decades in jail. So possibly there is something happening here that is discriminatory. And that was what's trending this hour. What's happening in entertainment news, Ryan? We have the latest info uh, into all you need to know about golf legend Tiger Woods' car crash. It's time for the T Report. Those pop culture stories trending right now. Um, now, Tiger Woods, the golf legend, was conscious and alert as he was pulled out through the windshield of his badly damaged SUV. His injuries were not considered life-threatening, uh, but according to the New York Times, it did include a compound fracture. Law enforcement sources told the LA Times that Woods was zooming down a steep uh, stretch of the road when he lost control of the SUV and veered over the center divider. The car rolled multiple times before finally coming to a halt um have you seen the photos of it i mean it's it's so scary yeah i'm surprised he's alive still he's very lucky yeah uh, you know obviously so many people are are reaching out and, and speaking of of course tiger's good friend donald trump has issued a statement about the crash saying get well soon tiger you are a champion uh tiger and trump go back years with trump famously awarding tiger the presidential medal of freedom in 2019 to honor tiger for winning the masters that's your team report and i got more coming up next hour now, coming up, there is an effort to recall California Governor Gavin Newsom, but why and could it actually work? We explored that next. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan, the new Channel Q. There's over 660,000 valid signatures to recall California Governor Gavin Newsom, but one and a half million are needed for a recall election. Joining us right now is Jerusalem Demsis, who's reporting for Vox.com on politics and policy. Thanks for being here. Hi, thanks for having me. So before we get into this, when and why did this recall movement begin? Because it seems like it kind of happened overnight, but also it wasn't overnight. Yeah, for sure. It's an important question. So the recall itself um, petition was first lodged early last year before um, COVID-19 was a really uh, big thing here in the United States. Um, and recalls are really common in California. This is the sixth recall effort against um, Governor Gavin Newsom. Um, and it really didn't begin gaining traction until later last year um, as, you know, people became getting very frustrated with the COVID-19 stay-at-home orders, and also, um, you know, Governor Newsom's now infamous um, visit to the French Laundry restaurant. So um, those two things really gave the recall effort the, you know, catalyzing, it can really catalyze the movement, it really catalyzed the supporters to be able to get more um, signatures. So it was something that really began before this. It's something that's very normal in California politics. Every single governor since Reagan has had a recall petition, at least one lodged against them. But the uniqueness here is just that it's getting enough support to be of concern to the governor. 
So if the recall effort gets the necessary signatures, what does that mean for Newsom? Does he actually mm -hmm. just lose his job? No, no. If uh, it gets um, it's nearly one point five million signatures um, are found uh, valid by the state, uh, then he will be pushed into a recall election. So what will then happen is a date of election will be set. It'll likely be near the end of this year, sometime in November, December, um, is what independent analysts are expecting. Um, but uh, so he'll have to, you know, compete. He'll have to have an election year um, that's not like normal because instead of just having one opponent, um, he's not only telling folks to not recall him, there will also be an unlimited number of other opponents running for governor in the case that the majority of Californians want to recall him. So there are two questions on the ballot. The first one will ask Californians, you know, do you want to recall the governor? Yes, no. And then the second one will have a list of all the potential candidates uh, that people can vote for. And last time there were over 130 candidates in some independent analysis analysts think that um, there could be 10 times that number this time because there's just no cap. So it, if if they do get the necessary number of signatures, this could be a really crazy election year. Wow. Again, we're talking to Jerusalem Demsis uh, from Vox.com. So how could this impact other governors across the country or will it? Yeah, I mean, it's a good question. So um, California is very unique. I mean, um, the set of um, there are a lot of policies in place that uh, were put in place in the early 1900s uh, in the progressive movement um, to democratize the state. So things like ballot initiatives, which, you know, other states have, but they're not as common here in California. It's very normal for people to essentially be writing laws as citizens and not as part of the legislature. So because of that, I mean, California is very unique in, in terms of, you know, being willing to recall a governor. It's the one of only two states that's ever actually recalled a governor. And that's when Arnold Schwarzenegger um, took uh, Gray Davis's seat um, in the early 2000s. So um, California is very unique. But I do think the larger lesson here is about how COVID-19 affected approval ratings for governors across the country. Mm -hmm. So, you know, right after it started, a lot of almost every single governor on both sides of the aisle saw um, an increase in support from their constituents. And it mostly is because, you know, when there's a crisis, people rally around the flag. They want to be united. They want to have someone to have a strong leader. They want someone to tell them what's going to happen and that it's going to be okay. And then the longer it goes on, especially crises that are really unexpected like this one, people start seeing the flaws in their government because they're paying attention. You start seeing scandals, you start seeing fraud, you start seeing right. abuse and waste and all of these different things. And especially when it comes to something that's really important to people like their health or getting back to norm normal life or their kids going to school, it becomes a really big deal for them, which is why I think um, the French laundry thing was a really, really big problem for Newsom. Yeah. So who's behind this recall? Is it a Republican dominated like lead thing that's mm -hmm. happening right now? So it's certainly the case that the organized effort is predominantly Republican. I mean, the major there are no comparable large Democratic endorsements um, or independent endorsements. You know, you have, you know, governors from other states, Republican governors and, you know, Newt Gingrich and other folks who have um, who have endorsed the effort. Um, but you don't see that on the Democratic side. Um, but, you know, proponents of the recall effort do say that they are appealing to a lot of independents as well. It's you know, we don't have that information publicly available to know how many of these signatures are independent voters. But at the end of the day, like to really recall a Democratic governor in California, you're going to need to appeal to Democratic voters. Um, since Gray Davis was um, recalled, uh, the state has only gotten more Democratic. A 538 analysis, which expects that Gavin Newsom will keep his seat, indicates that, 
you know, it's gotten 10 percent, uh, 10 percentage points more Democratic since Gray Davis was um, lost his his seat. So it's going to be really hard for the recall proponents to actually um, garner victory if they're not able to connect with Democratic voters. And they're pointing to things like, you know, if it happens in the fall and kids aren't back in school, people will only be more upset. And um, Gavin Newsom's poll numbers have been declining over time, but uh, we'll see what happens. Jerusalem Demsis from Vox.com. Thank you so much. You're great. Yeah, thanks for having me. Coming up on the show, why Hill staffers remain overwhelmingly white, even though Congress is the most diverse ever. We're going to get into that with political reporter Maya King next. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan, the new Channel Q. This Congress seems to be the most diverse ever, right? But Hill staffers remain overwhelmingly white. And Maya King, who's a politics reporter and contributor for Politico's newsletter, The Recast, about race and identity within politics, wrote about this subject. She joins us now. We love having her on. Welcome back. Thanks for having me. So why was it important for you to write this piece? How long was it in the making? Yes, that is a, that's a great question. This piece was about a month in the making, actually. A number of people, uh, as this new Congress came to Washington and people started to hire up, a number of consultants and folks who are familiar with Congress started reaching out uh, to point out the fact that a lot of the uh, people of color, members of color, and just members writ large, Democrats who had really large multiracial bases, were not staffing up. Uh, with people of color who matched that base. And it was really infuriating, especially among those who perhaps had donated um, to these uh, campaigns or folks who were members of the communities that actually are part of Democrats' multiracial base, but didn't see themselves represented in the um, in the staffing ranks, particularly among top-level staffers. So those who are uh, legislative and policy directors, uh, chiefs of staff, communications directors, those who are really calling the shots um, remain very overwhelmingly white. And so that was um, a story that I had started chasing and asking around about and turned into an avalanche of information and data that resulted in, um, in this story that ran uh, today on Tuesday. Yeah, I think what was shocking to me is Georgia's first black senator, uh, Raphael Warnack, uh, Senator Warnack, uh, Nock, um, he basically one based off of the um, um a huge and large amounts of black voters that came out in support that was led by Stacey Abrams what does that say even about you know uh, the 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 black folks who are in in great positions of leadership and they're still not even having kind of representation when it comes to their staff yeah i mean to evoke an old adage to whom much is given much is required i believe that's how it goes i think for voters, especially those in the South, it's to whom much is given, much is expected. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. It's great to see that uh, Rever- Senator Warnock, Reverend Senator Warnock now is, um, as his communications director told me, trying to change the face of Washington. He does have one of just two black communications directors on his staff. And yet the fact that he still has a white chief of staff um, has overshadowed in many ways the diversity mm-hmm. strides that he's contributed to. In the Senate, a number of folks pointed out to me that his chief of staff is white, despite despite the fact that his communications and policy directors are black. So a lot of eyes are on um, the other senator from Georgia, John Ossoff, to see if he will uh, either, you know, follow Warnock's lead here and make sure that two thirds of his top staffers are people of color, specifically black or if um, he will fill those positions with with white or non-black um, uh, staffers. Yeah. And it, he hasn't quite announced yet. So, 
We're talking to politics reporter from Politico, Maya King. And in talking to folks like Brewer, who you just mentioned, was there anything surprising about their perspective on this issue? Well, I mean, they pointed out to me that, you know, especially on the Senate side, it's really easy to be one uh, of 50 or more people of color, non-white people on a staff. And that really stood out to me. Also, the fact that there's kind of a brain drain on the Hill now under a Democratic administration where a number of top staffers, particularly top staffers who are women of color on the House side, have moved over to the White House or over to um, agencies under um, or government agencies. And so away from the Hill, which has created, you know, a lack of expertise um, or perspective from a woman of from women of color and has also just made it a lot more difficult for these offices to be able to fill those roles with more people of color who are qualified. Interesting. Is yeah. there a reason why you think that, you know, these leaders would have like a white chief of chief of staff? Is it because they're kind of in the sense when we're talking playing the game, right? It feels like you kind of have a you have to have like a, a white person next to you to get into doors that maybe people wouldn't listen to. Should we really be fighting, uh, faulting our black leaders in that? Or is it kind of just the overall system that we really need to be looking at? I think it's both, if that's if that's uh, fair to say, in yeah. that a number of members are perhaps especially white members who might even represent majority white districts are unfamiliar with what it means to to really incorporate in a meaningful way diversity in hiring. And the same is true even among some members of color because the barriers to entry, um, as I also mentioned in the story, are extremely high for people of color and for young people of color to really be able to break in um, to the ranks of the Hill especially in Washington, where the cost of living is super high and mm-hmm. your, your network is your net worth. Mm-hmm. And so that can be really difficult for uh, someone who's come from perhaps a state school halfway across the country who just is really interested in policy and wants to work for someone who also or who makes policy. Um, and it's the same also for those who try to break in on the campaign level, long hours on certain timelines, low pay, like these are all things that really make it difficult for those who come from lower income backgrounds. Those people tend to be people of color, yeah. uh, to break into this, into this, um, this world of Washington. Wow. Well, Maya King, we love having you on. Thanks again for all the work you do. We appreciate it. Thanks as always for having me. King, again, is a politics reporter at Politico. Check out her work in their new newsletter. It's called The Recast. It's about race and identity. It just launched today within politics, of course. Now coming up on the show, how Reddit became America's unofficial unemployment hotline. How does that work? Well, we'll explain that next. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan, the new Channel Q has been here for us in different ways during the pandemic. Of course, it blew up the stock market. We saw that with GameStop. Well, now it's helping those who are unemployed as well. I mean, it's not surprising that Reddit has this as a subreddit, which is kind of like a forum, right? So there's a forum called unemployment. And basically, they get like thousands of posts a day from people trying to figure everything out because it is an old and antiquated system uh, from, you know, delays in payments and uncertainty about legislation uh, to what's happening at the Labor Department, unemployment benefits. People are hitting up Reddit to seek the answers, basically. (laughs) Which is so weird because I 
automatically, I thought just by kind of glancing over this article before I read it, it was just interesting to to see like, oh, is this about maybe people are being able to monetize like the amount of comments or posts that they're making or if their thread becomes super popular, then they can make some money off of it. But really, this is just a space for people to, I guess, not to be so blunt and harsh about it, but to find, I was going to say something else, but, but to find oh. community, is, I think is a nicer way to <laughs> and say. Complain. And complain. Complain about the system. <laughs> And F the system, what is going on? Which, I mean, same. I wish I had, like, a you know, a group of people of, like, which I do, I guess. It depends on, that's it's basically social media. I just thought that's what Reddit always was. And now it's being, like, seen as this hotline of some sorts. Yeah, here's the thing. You ever try calling those hotlines? It's actually real government numbers, Ryan? <laughs> no, the only hotlines that I used to call were sex hotlines when I was young. Wow. It's true. Okay. I did. I did. <laughs> that that's another conversation. I am intrigued. <laughs> I did. I mean, did anybody did everybody used to do that? I didn't, but I guess now I'm thinking about it. Maybe I was a bit curious <laughs> or I should have been. Uh but here's the thing is like you call any of those numbers, it's hard to reach someone on the other end. And it's hard to get answers. I mean, I tried to change my address on my social security and IRS form. I couldn't even figure it out. So it makes sense to have forms like this where, you know, smart people are helping the not so smart people who just don't get what's happening and need to navigate it because it sucks. It sucks when you're in that place and you just want to figure it out and you can't even get any answers on the other end. Yeah. And I, I, I have to agree with that. Right. I think there is a, a sense of one finding people who are going through the same thing. That's the good thing about social media. And finding ways of how they're coping and maybe applying it to your own life to be like, oh, well, maybe this works for me as well. Um, and so I do think it's interesting, even though I know there's a dark side as well. Like this just feels like this may be the most positive side or positive thing that comes out of Reddit, in my opinion. I'm not really a Redditor. The most practical thing that comes out of Reddit. Yeah, yeah. And it, I mean, it's positive, too. People are finding community, like I said. Yeah, and they're getting answers to questions that, uh, that revolve around making money. I guess everything around Reddit is revolves around trying to figure out how to make money, right? Very but, true. you know, this, is, this was brought up by producer Vanessa that it reminded her of the new episode of Crime. The girl that disappeared would write everything on Tumblr, and she ended <gasps> up gone. She's talking about the, the, the new documentary on Netflix, the Cecil documentary. Um, about the Cecil Hotel in downtown Los Angeles. I think that's what she's talking about because that girl also did that. But, the, yeah, but on Reddit, you are anonymous. You have your username. Mine would be unicorn245 or something. It's not like someone could track me down possibly and say, oh, Shira, you know, I, I'm intrigued by this person. I'm going to track her down and then find her and do things. Well, anyway, if you have questions around unemployment and you've had a hard time getting answers, check it out. Maybe this will help you. R slash unemployment on Reddit. Now, coming up, we've got the first out LGBT plus Iranian American elected to public office in the U.S. Joining us, Seppi Shine, 5.30 p.m. Pacific, 8.35 p.m. Eastern. Stay tuned for that next. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan, the new Channel Q. We 
are back and we're so excited to have someone who was on our show two years ago when she was running for public office. She's very special because she is now, because she has since been elected, the first out LGBTQ plus Iranian American elected to public office in the US. Sepi Shine is with us. You know, we saw this great profile of her in The Advocate and we're like, wait a sec, we know her. It's been a while, but we got to get her back on. Oh yeah. And she is coming up 5.30 p.m. Pacific, 8.30 p.m. Eastern, right here on Channel Q. Granted, you didn't even remember that she was on the show. We 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 had that moment in real time, live mm-hmm. on air, where you had, were like, oh, yeah, that's right. But I mean, yeah, it was I, like, a while forgot. ago. Yeah, I forgot. Yeah, I was like, Seppi, why does it sound familiar? You're like, yeah, she's been on her show. We hadn't talked to her in a, a few years. Time flies by. Mm-hmm. Uh, but right now, let's get into some what's trending this hour. The Senate confirmation hearing for Deb Haaland. Uh, she's nominated to become the first Native American Interior Secretary was today. Here's a moment from her opening statement. And generations of ancestors who have sacrificed so much so I could be here today. I acknowledge that we are on the ancestral homelands of the Nacotchtank, Anacostan, and Piscataway people. As many of you know, my story is unique. Although today I serve as a member of Congress, and was the vice chair of the House Natural Resources Committee. If confirmed, I would be the first Native American to serve as cabinet secretary. This historic nature of my confirmation is not lost on me, but I will say it's not about me. Rather, I hope this nomination would be an inspiration for Americans moving forward together as one nation. Very powerful words. Not about me. It's about all of us. Love that. And a new documentary from Amazon Studios is set to pull back the curtain on Pete Buttigieg's history-making run for president. Uh, Though Buttigieg is now the U.S. Transportation Secretary, the documentary will chronicle his run for the U.S. Democratic presidential nomination. And by the way, he has not been the first out gay candidate to make a run, but is considered to be the first to pose as a serious contender. And the documentary is called Mayor Pete's. I mean, I was expecting this. Um, I just recently actually watched the Stacey Abrams documentary about oh. voting, which was really good. It's on Amazon Prime. I recommend it to everyone. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm not shocked by this. I'll be watching. Mm-hmm. I'm going to check it out, too. There you go. And that was so much trending this hour. What's happening in entertainment news, Ryan? Oh, my God. Friend of the show and Drag Race judge Ross Matthews is engaged. It's time for your tea report those pop culture stories trending right now. He announced today that he's engaged, and the internet has already identified Matthew's new fiance as Dr. Wellington Garcia. Here's what Ross said in his post Fiance, you stay. I am so proud to announce that after over a year together, navigating a pandemic, quarantine, and opposite coasts, the, uh, the smartest, funniest, and kindest man I've ever met said yes um also that tweet had a photo of him and garcia wearing matching rings he said dr garcia i love you a lifetime Mm -hmm. of adventure awaits are you shocked by this i totally am so here's the thing i follow ross on instagram and he'd been in new york a lot for the drew uh, barrymore show and he also announced it on the talk show today but uh and he mentioned that he there was a new love new beginnings and there was this vibe. He'd been teasing that he's met someone, but he wasn't giving any details. Wait, Drew, Drew Barrymore doesn't film out here? Yeah, it films in New York. 
Wow, I did not know that. But yeah, yeah I, I I listened to his podcast. We already know that I am an avid fan. And um, he uh, has been kind of hinting around that there's been someone in his life. Mm-hmm. But he's been very, especially after his last relationship and how public the divorce was, he most definitely is keeping a lot to himself, which I totally am all here for. I'm just excited for him. Um, not much is really known about his new fiance. His public Instagram has only one photo of like the Empire State Building and another of him with Matthews. Um, so congrats, Ross. Sending you tons of love. Maybe he'll come back on and we'll talk a little bit more about it. Definitely. We love that. Love, love. Now coming up, Project Fierce is increasing awareness about hate crimes against trans women. And Raina, you're hosting the special here on Channel Q on Thursday with Angelica Ross. It's going to be amazing. Well, Project Fierce creator and producer Anthony Preston joins us to tell us more about all of it right after this. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan, the new Channel Q. The Project Fierce campaign aims to bring further awareness to the increasing number of hate crimes against black trans women. And now Channel Q is airing a whole special hosted by Angelica Ross, our own Ryan Mitchell, with special celebrity guests. It's coming up this Friday. It's called Project Fierce. (laughs) Creator and producer of A2 Music Productions and Fierce creator Anthony Preston is with us right now to talk about all of it. Thanks for being here. Hey, what's up? Thank you guys for having me. I really appreciate everything you guys are doing. I, this has gotten so big, it's bigger than anything I ever imagined. So um, just to have you guys taking such a front and center role in helping us amplify this message has been, I just can't even say thank you enough. Anthony, you can't take off some of the credit because you are one of the most talented human beings that I feel like I have oh, met. Oh, cut it out. Um, I and, and I know, and I, and I think, you know, when you bought this idea, I, I feel like, and we talked about it personally offline about like how you felt like this was such a strong message and so important to get into the the the, the radar of so many people. I, I would love for you to touch on that. Why was this moment, Project Fear, so important for you personally? Well, I mean, I think there's two ways I kind of look at it. It's the direct impact of a community that has been there for me personally for um, a very specific time in my life that we don't even have time to get into right now. Uh, But also um, a community that I was sitting back and watching be celebrated from an entertainment perspective. Um, I was watching all of us run to parties to watch Pose or Drag Race while not really understanding uh, what's really happening on the ground in their community and the fact that we can do something about that as a community uh, to make that better. The violence rates and the, the, the statistics around the violence are just egregious. Um, and, and when I was watching the narrative of that combined with the popularity of the television shows and other kind of entertainment narratives, I knew that people weren't aware. And so I wanted to help make people aware what's really going on um, on the ground. Yeah. yeah. And and you're also raising money for different charities who help the cause. With the streaming mm. the song, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's important. I think that, you know, just by virtue, um, one of the interesting statistics that I came across was the fact that um, in the traditional LGBTQ plus space, um, I think the last stat recorded was 2018 that showed that four cents of every $100 makes its way to trans related issues. And at the same time, I was watching the last administration, um, you know, really target these people 
Um, and so those, that kind of was a conflict to me. And I wanted to do something to help that conflict and help organizations who were already aware of the work that needed to be done, but necessarily didn't have the funding in place to do something. So, you know, short of my being able to just write a check, I was like, well, I want to use what gifts I have and what resources I have to make as a big as a make as big of an impact as I possibly could. So um, that's definitely a part of it. Yeah. Again, we're talking to the creator of Project Fierce and producer of A2 Music Productions, Anthony Preston. Which, and honey, let me be clear, Fierce, Project Fierce got its name for a reason. And it's a special song with uh, Angelica Ross and the pop artist Mila Jam that you produce. Take us into that moment. What was that? How was it working with these two wonderful, like trans, incredible human beings? Well, I got to tell you, it actually started with house legend Alternate, who is an old friend of mine and number 12 of Billboard's um, all-time dance artist. Um, and just, you know, we love Free. Free yeah. is, is, is one of my biggest anthems for my personal um, story, my, my coming out story. Um, but she and I have been threatening to work together for a long time. And as this project developed conceptually, um, I was like, I think I, I think I want to tie this song into it. Ultra's a huge advocate and has always been down for the kids before it was popular to be down for the kids. And and so I started reaching out. I Mila came across my radar, and I went to New York and I met her, and I instantly fell in love. And somehow or another, I let this child drag me through about four or five different performances she had in one night. And it was crazy. I can't even tell you how crazy it was. And then Angelica, when the, just when I was about to um, really go out, Angelica came along a little later in the game. I was, I was looking for support. So there's this huge video concept um, that we're going to be shooting, um, Knock on the Wood, Prayers to the Universe, that has cameos from all these amazing people from the community with, you know, so much social media following and support, all in the name of helping um, this community. And so I went to Angelica asking her if she would be in the music video. And I'll never forget. She was like, sure, but I want to be on the song too. And I was like, you can sing? And she was like, yeah, I can sing. I was like, and I'm one of those, let's just try it and see what happens, guys. So sure, come by the house. Let's warm up the mic and see what happens. And she killed it. So we've got Angelica Ross joining us on the show tomorrow. And Project Fierce, of course, is Thursday on Channel Q. So what can people expect? I think they can expect to have Fun for a cause, right? Um, people keep telling me, I, I, I don't want to toot our own horn, but it's not the reason we did it. But people seem to really like the song. They call it a, an anthem in the making. So let's make it an anthem, but let's mm -hmm. do it in the name of helping these women who have provided our community with so much. A lot of people don't know the real narrative about how these women, um, I could argue that they started the gay rights movement. I could fairly argue that. That's facts. Uh, it's, that's it's facts. actually factual, yeah. Anthony Preston of A2 Music Productions, also the creator of Project Fierce. Listen to it right here on Channel Q, the special with Ryan Mitchell here, Angelica yes, Ross, yes. special celebrity guest, airing Thursday on May 10 to 12 p.m. Pacific, 1 to 3 p.m. Eastern, and Angelica Ross on our show. Let's go there tomorrow. So much to look forward to. Thanks again. Thanks for having me. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan, the new Channel Q. Sebby Shine was actually on our show how long ago, Ryan? Oh my two God, years. has it already been two years? Two what years. is going on? We were babies so then. 
Right. She made history in November, though, as the first out LGBTQ plus Iranian American elected to public office in the U.S. Now as a member of the West Hollywood City Council, she's also the first queer woman of color to serve. She's, of course, fighting for social justice, inclusivity and changing the narrative around Iranian and Iranian Americans. And she joins us right now. Seppi Shine, welcome to the show. Hi, Shira and Ryan. It's so good to be back. Thank you for having me. Yes, uh, we are so proud of you and everything that you're accomplishing. You got sworn in, as we mentioned, towards the end of last year. What what has your year been so far in the first few months? Um, busy, busy, busy. Yeah. Um, exciting, exhilarating. Um, I had my wife Ashley swear me in, actually. Oh uh, wow! So, oh. Yeah, that was just so beautiful, and we were able to be, you know, together instead of being on zoom you know with the clerk or anybody else and we did it right in front of our christmas tree and it was really nice and lovely and um with the first meeting that i had i passed uh, a big part of my campaign uh policy which was uh to create a social justice task force made up of black indigenous and people of color who are residents, small business owners, um, and workers to advise the city council on policies to dismantle systemic racism. And we just had the application period open for a couple of weeks and it just closed uh, yesterday. So I'm so excited to interview all of the applicants and uh, for this much needed task force to start doing their work so we can Amazing. Yeah, it seems like you already have an idea of the things that you want to get done and what needs to get done, because I've always been critical of West Hollywood of not feeling as inclusive as it should. And so how are you going to be making sure that that changes and is it just the atmosphere feels different? I always tell this to people when you go to a party, the host sets the atmosphere. Well, when you're in a city or a state or a country, the leaders set the atmosphere. And the way I've done that is, like I said, by passing the social justice task force. Um, another big part of my uh, platform was small businesses. And specifically, um, I also co-sponsored an item that um, council member John Erickson, who also won his campaign, um, he and I worked on this together, which was to create incentives for uh, BIPOC business owners, as well as women and LGBTQ people, and also residents to be able to open up businesses more easily in West Hollywood. Uh, he and I also co-sponsored uh, the, basically we're gonna now have the trans flag um, on a wow. crosswalk in West Hollywood. So we and that was a big, cool. that was a big sign of contention when that happened. There was a lot of people either on the council or leaders. They had something to say about that, and they will rename, remain nameless, honey. But um, yeah, I, I'm happy that that is going to be there to stay, and it's not being removed because I know there was a lot of ish, like issues with that at one point. Yeah. Well, it did get so. So what happened is that it was created um, in the middle of a crosswalk. So that was actually removed. But this item basically that we passed um, legally and through policy is going to create a transgender crosswalk, which is That's much amazing. Yeah. Again, Sebi Shine is with us. First out LGBT plus Iranian American elected to public office in the U.S. and West Hollywood City Council member. How has your personal background informed your political stance and actions? Oh, a lot. I mean, I'm an immigrant. 
Um, I came out when I was 19 as a lesbian to a, you know, Persian family. Um, I've, I'm Iranian. My background, being a woman in this country, that we still um, see a lot of uh, sexism around us and misogyny. And my background has informed my perspective, which is multifaceted. And so with that different uh, perspectives that I have and the ability to reach so many different communities, I'm able to really connect and figure out, you know, this is what's needed for, for our city. And I think that was reflected in the votes. I got the highest amount of votes ever in the history of the city. Yes. I mean, are we really shocked? No, we're not. Um, and I think when we get back from the break, we're doing a lot here on Channel Q, um, especially highlighting the lives of black trans women. And I think a, a major question that I have for anybody that is a leader is what are they going to be doing to make sure we are speaking up against the violence against black trans women? And so I would love for you to think about it. And we're going to answer it when we get back. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan, the new Channel Q. We are back with Seppi Shine. She is doing so much stuff, including this very special moment here. First out LGBTQ plus Iranian American elected to public office in the U.S., a West Hollywood City Council member, a friend of the show. Mm-hmm. Great again to have you here today. Thank you. Thank you so much. How do we keep people politically engaged? Because a lot of people we saw this summer, we saw the awakening. But because news is kind of boring now, because Joe Biden's not as, you know, toxic as the former president. How do we keep people still knowing and needing to, to care about politics? Um, I think we need to connect to them. That's that's the thing as leaders. Um, we need to keep engaging people, not necessarily just sitting there and saying, well, I hope that this outside force awakens them. Um, and that's through engagement, through the, the different Dem clubs. And quite honestly, just because Trump and his drama and chaos is gone, that doesn't mean that the effects of all of that is gone just because Joe Biden's in office. Uh, we see that in the fact that we just hit the 500,000 uh, deaths in America milestone. We're still uh, dealing with getting vaccines out. Yes, we had a social justice movement, but our work is just at the beginning and there's so much more work to do. Um, and even, you know, Joe Biden, we got to hold him to the fire and make sure that he, uh, you know, passes more progressive uh, laws and, and, you know, cause we, I, I, I think uh, I'm so happy he's president. I am ecstatic about Kamala. Um, but we just need to continue to educate, educate, educate people. And I think that's where our job comes in. Like my job is to engage a community. And so um, that was another thing is uh, that we're working on in West, the city of West Hollywood. We just discussed the expansion of our public safety commission in its purview. So there's a lot of things that they weren't able to do before, but we had a discussion and, and really kind of changed. I went through line by line. I think I had the most to say that night, but uh, for example, uh, giving them the possibility of 
a reimagining uh, policing, right? Mm, yes, okay. yes. That was not in their purview. So that's going to come back to us for a final vote. But So, Seppi, uh, before we let you go, I want to go back to Ryan's question because we did, uh, he's hosting Project Fierce right here on Channel Q, and we just had uh, the creator and producer, Anthony Preston, on the show. And we do talk about this, and it's Black History Month, but really protecting and raising awareness around uh, Black trans women. So how are you going to do that within your position right now? Thank you so much. Um, you know, we already talked about the trans flag. We talked about the social justice task force. This social justice task force is actually going to be collaborating with the lesbian gay advisory board as well as, well as the transgender advisory board. Because the reality is when it comes to ra racial inequality and systemic racism, there are different layers and layers that our community deals with uh, for the LGBTQ community. And then layered within that, is the real um, urgency to protect black trans women. So um, I actually appointed a black trans woman um, as my appointee to the Transgender Advisory Board. Yes. Uh, so Blossom mm -hmm. Brown, I'm sure you, you all yeah. know. She's Blossom actually, she part, she's participating <laughs> in Project amazing. Fear. She's going to be her. in conversation um, with Angelica Ross. And it's, it's, it's great. She great. is incredible. Yes, she really is. And her activism and leadership and voice is going to be crucial because the Transgender Advisory Board then is through that she's going to be able to set policies or recommend policies uh, to city council that uh, will will shift We'll shift the dynamics and help Black trans. Oh, so good. Well, yeah, amazing. Seppi Shine, thank you again for joining us. We can't wait to see where else you take this. Because then we'll say, we knew her when. Yes! <laughs> <laughs> and you will always so have my vote. Yes. Oh, sweet. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan. The new Channel Q. And this is something we talk about a lot on the show and what we go through. Ryan, you've been open about this. Financial PTSD financial trauma it is real and i didn't even know this was a thing but there's a financial therapist you know people have that position and we're having one here today to discuss spending trauma and guilt including for bipoc communities that is coming up in 15 minutes and how to deal with it all because this is real for a lot of folks who uh whether you're an immigrant or you are bipoc it is real i mean i'm a jew and we're scared of losing things. Let's just say that comes from our history. <laughs> Is that anti-Semitic? No, I was talking about myself because I'm Jewish. I can make fun I know, of but I'm just, you never know. I just be feeling like that is a stereotype that Jewish people hate. It's real. <laughs> anyway, Girl, you go, that's a clubhouse chat. Experience. That is a clubhouse chat room if I've ever heard one. Uh, plus, <laughs> California Governor Gavin Newsom be recalled. That's coming up too. <laughs> First, let's get into some what's trending this hour. LA County Sheriff Alex Villanueva says the officers who responded to Tiger Woods' car crash did not see any evidence of impairment, in case you were wondering. We arrived on scene at 7.18 a.m. and discovered the solo vehicle collision and the sole occupant was again uh, Tiger Woods and uh, deputies at the time they did not see any evidence of impairment anything that uh, of concern obviously the, the life-setting measures that had to be taken for the occupant of the vehicle. He is currently in surgery but supposedly as you mentioned Ryan earlier in the show it was not life-threatening uh, so 
that's a good thing. And hopefully he'll be out very soon and feeling better and healed. Yeah, I hope also that uh, every news organization that I've been kind of tuning in on, they keep mm-hmm. like literally just putting it on the car and I'm tired. I mean, like, I'm, I'm like thankful that he is okay, but like, I think we've gotten enough footage at this point. Like, let's move. Let's uh, like, yeah. let's like not mm-hmm. keep showing that around. It's, it's, it's always this fine line with news organizations when something tragic kind of happens. And breaking news, yeah. right? Yeah. Now, uh, although only opening in 2013, Virgil C room in San Francisco established a loyal following as a neighborhood bar that welcomed everyone. And now officially they've announced that they are closing, which is really sad. A fundraiser to offer some financial assistance to the bartenders, uh, the barbacks and door staff is accepting donations on GoFundMe. But they are the latest of many well-loved LGBTQ bars that have closed across the U.S. over the last year of the pandemic. And many remain temporarily closed due to local restrictions. San Francisco establishments to close include the Stud and Badlands. So Virgil Sea Room, if you have been there, uh, then I'm sorry to say that has closed down. Mm, that's so sad. Uh, it's yeah. so tragic what's happening uh-huh. of these LGBTQ spots. Like, how are we supposed to have our safe space? And especially when the world opens back up, like that is literally what we've talked about here on the show and, and how this has really impacted so many queer folks and the loneliness. Where are we going to go to when, you know, the spaces are open back up again? So it's just, it's really sad what's happening. Yes, the other side to it, I know this is um, an interesting thing to say is it's going to open up a lot of opportunity for new spots and for people that are like the next generation to open new places. Maybe if we are, we're all not poor or have lost our jobs. Yeah. Or some rich folks. I don't know. <laughs> okay. Come together. Yeah. Let's all come together and create new spaces or bring back the old ones. Oh my God. You're so like, we're the world. Cue music, please. No. That was what's trending this hour. What's happening in entertainment news, Ryan? Now, why is Chrissy Teigen begging Joe Biden to unfollow her on Twitter? It is time for your tea report. Those pop culture stories trending right now. Chrissy Teigen is literally begging President Biden to unfollow her on Twitter on today, claiming she uh, loves the commander-in-chief, but she needs to flourish. Here's what she says. She says, I have tweeted a handful of times since my treasured at POTUS following, uh, following, who was, you know, obviously, if you also didn't know, she was famously blocked by the former President Donald Trump in 2017, and she gained a follow from Biden last month. But, um... I understand the pressures behind this because Tamron Hall just followed me on Twitter and I feel like now I have to act like, oh, she could see my tweets and I don't want to tweet nothing crazy or like funny where I think is funny. And she's just like, oh my God, who is this guy? Like you have to kind of be like really top tier. So imagine if the president is following you, like that's intense. I mean, yeah, but I wonder if there was a list of the unfollows or the blocks from uh, Trump and then the Biden, someone on his strategy social media team was like, this is the funniest thing. We're just going to follow everyone that Trump blocked. Well, no, President Biden's only following a handful of people and Chrissy Teigen was randomly chosen to be one of them. Um, But she did say about an hour and a half later after this tweet, she says, I am free. It's unclear why she wanted to be unfollowed by the president. Um, but yeah, this, that's what happened. He's no longer following her. She got her wish. You know, Ryan, this is my little violin for Chrissy. (laughs) uh, Sorry, life is hard that the uh, president follows you. Oh my goodness. That's your tea report, y'all. Now, uh, coming up, spending guilt is real for the BIPOC community and a financial therapist explains how to deal with it all next. 
Let's go there with Shira and Ryan, the new Channel Q. Spending guilt is a thing, but especially for the BIPOC community. And here to explain why and how to deal with it is Michigan-based financial therapist, Lindsay Brian Podvin. Thanks for being here. Yeah, I'm really happy to see you both. Yes, because obviously, you know, we're on Zoom, even though people can't see us right now, just yes. hear us. But okay, <laughs> first, before we get into this, what is a financial therapist? Do I need another type of therapist right now? Because this sounds intriguing. Yeah, the answer is maybe. So a financial therapist, it's a newly emerging field. It's been around for about 10 years, but my background is as a clinical social worker. So I'm a trained therapist with specialized training in financial literacy and psychology. So financial therapists help people with the emotional side of money. So less what is a budget and more why can't I stick to one? What's making it hard? How come I'm resisting this? So why is it so important to connect the mental health aspect of money to um, the everyday feelings that we go through? Like, why is it so important to kind of acknowledge that? Yeah, it's important to acknowledge the mental health aspect of money because it's intersected inherently with money. You know, we, we talk about money, we loan it, we spend it, we lend it. All of that stuff is inherently emotional and psychological. And if we just come at money from this lens of just look at what's coming in your bank account and what's going out, we're forgetting about huge aspects of the person who's engaging with that money. Definitely. Now, why is this something for the BIPOC community that's especially an issue? Because the my, my friend, Berna Anat, who is a Filipina financial expert, she says the the financial world is hella male and hella pale. Mm-hmm. And so it's especially important for the BIPOC community to see themselves represented and to have people who are financial advisors, experts, and therapists who look sound and understand them and come to them from a culturally competent lens. The financial field has mostly excluded BIPOC folks because they don't talk to them about the, the ways in which history has excluded BIPOC folks folks from things that are policy-based, such as redlining and no access to banks or credit cards, all the way to the emotional aspects of cultural trauma and racial trauma that we experience. Yes. I mean, you are really saying it here. And to be honest, I feel like I've coined, not coined it, but I mean, I feel like I use this term a lot. Like, like there's a, there is a real sense of having like a financial PTSD. And I think oftentimes that is something that I on the daily deal with. Um, Mm -hmm. And so that's why I I find it so incredibly, um, even, I, I mean, I find it so incredibly useful that you're here talking to us about this because I don't think people even think about that. Like my family doesn't even really talk about it in that way. It's just like, you got to stick to your budget. You got to be smart about it, but not understanding the kind of the trauma that's attached to totally. being at the lowest in your financial place if you've ever been there. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, let's talk about that again. We're talking to Michigan-based financial therapist, Lindsay Brian Podvin. Uh, what is, uh, where does this come from, which you kind of mentioned, but uh, like, how do we know when it's an issue? How do we know when you're being responsible versus when you're having that guilt and it's an issue and you need a therapist or you need to be looking at this? Yeah, yeah. So I think what you're touching on is this idea that we think that if we don't spend money, then that 
absolutely makes us good with money. There's this really hard binary of good with money means saving and earning a lot and bad with money means spending or having debt. And when it comes to the BIPOC community specifically, there is a level of trauma there that might make it hard to spend money or to enjoy the income that they have earned. Because historically over time, we've learned, it's been passed down to us, that it is safe to hold on tightly to your money, to have it easily accessible, right? There's all these stories about families who hide money in the mattress or hide money in a milk jar somewhere, right? Because we know that there's a level of safety available when we have money easily accessible to us. So it might make it hard to spend that hard-earned money on things that feel a little bit outside of our comfort zone, right? We might have our, our, our aunts in our head saying like, oh, you can't buy those groceries without a coupon. You know, we might have our family members' voices in our head saying, don't spend money on, on things like X, Y, and Z like travel or food or, or stuff like that, right? So there's yeah, these yeah. layers of guilt. How can this trickle over into our work lives, especially when it comes to asking for our, oh uh, trying to ask for more money, right? <laughs> yes. Like it feels like yes. you're not worthy to it, I th- mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. Well, there's so many competing factors at play when it comes to folks of color who are trying to negotiate their income. One, we know that there's an income gap that exists. So we do have to advocate for higher pay and just equal pay, right? Um, but with that, when it comes to negotiating for a higher wage, we have to battle with all of our internal voices saying, am I going to come across aggressive? Am I going to come across assertive? You know, are they thinking I'm just asking for this, you know, because there's a tokenization thing and I'm the only black or brown or Asian person in this room, right? We have to fight (laughs) with so many things when it comes to negotiating. So it's not about just showing up to your boss's office with your resume and showcasing all of the work you've done. It's also overcoming all of these internal and external struggles when it comes to just asking for the amount of money that you're working is worth. But I feel like we can't leave you from here without getting a tip of how to deal with this, how to heal the trauma, even though it's layered. So one, we heal trauma in layers. So we do the work internally. We deal with our own thoughts and feelings and emotions, but specifically when it comes to financial trauma and cultural trauma, we heal in community. So talking about it with our friends, with our family, with our loved ones, and being validated and supported as we try and heal our trauma is imperative. Wow. Michigan-based financial therapist, Lindsay Brian Podvin, thanks for being here. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan, the new Channel Q. Wrapping up the show with our Yes Queen of the Day. Yes, Queen. You know, I'm a big fan of Jada Pinkett Smith. Well, she announced the launch of Hey Human. It's a gender neutral personal care brand featuring bath and body products. Love this. And according to Pinkett Smith, the products are sustainably designed, created with naturally derived ingredients high performance and effective, you know, all those buzzwords. And uh, here she is talking about the whole announcement on her Instagram. Hey guys, I'm Jada Pinkett Smith, and I'm so excited to share with you a new project of mine called Hey Humans. As you may know, personal care is one of my passions, but so is sustainability. As a family, we've loved supporting Jaden on his journey with Just Water. And now we have Hey Humans, which I'm proud to present as the first personal care brand to be 99% plastic-free across category. We have toothpaste, deodorant, body wash, and lotion all in the collection. Our scents are gender neutral and formulated with naturally derived, upcycled ingredients to best respect our planet's resources. 
Uh, but seriously, I just adore her and I adore the fact that she's creating something that is uh, eco-conscious, not just in terms of what you're putting on your skin, but also how they're creating these products uh, and her awareness around that. It's fabulous. It's probably going to cost a whole bunch of money too. No, it's all under $8. Hmm. Or like they said, six or eight dollars. So it's also price effective. I like that now. Look, Cost look effective. You. you made me eat my words. Uh, exactly. I think that's great. I'm I'm super excited for all things Jada. So this is just added to the list. Yep. And that does it for our Yes Queen of the Day and our show. Yes, Queen. Nominate someone for our Yaz Queen of the Day. We love to hear from you. At LGT Show is where you can find us on social media. Now Coming up tomorrow on the show, we've got a big one. We've got actress, trans rights advocate, entrepreneur Angelica Ross joining us. She is just also fabulous, another fabulous woman. And we had a great discussion with her. Plus, Glad is joining us to talk about transgender representation in the media. That is on tomorrow's show, live right here on Channel Q, 4 to 7 p.m. Pacific, 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern. And a reminder that we post everything as a podcast. So if you miss any of our show, you want to stay up to date, just search Let's Go There on the radio.com app. And that's where you can find us. It's that easy. We are sending you love and light. And honey, remember to slay. And uh, stick around for Love Line with Dr. Chris right after this. Bye, y'all.